Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne and I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. So I don't know about you Sarah but it has been a very odd week carrying on with our everyday lives, writing articles and recording podcasts at a time when there is a conflict in Europe. Yes, it's, it's felt kind of oddly disconnected because you sort of finish a day of talking about things like child benefit or mortgages or something like that and then you go back to the news and, and see what's happening in the wider world. So it has been very strange. And at the same time, we're, we're more connected to it than ever, aren't we? With people broadcasting or posting to social media from their basements on their smartphones and the crisis has shown yet again the transformative power of technology. But this does come at a time, of course, when on the stock markets there's been plenty of question marks thrown up about their value with the tech sector really under pressure since the start of the year. So it's only right that we take those twin tracks in today's podcast. So we're looking at the financial and technological implications of the conflict in Ukraine against a challenging backdrop for companies in an episode we're calling Testing Times for Tech. And we'll be speaking to Richard Skellett, CEO of IT Solutions Business Allied Worldwide. Richard, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I know you're a busy man and it's a busy time for the business. Yes, it is. Um, it's very serious times all around us at the moment. We'll also chat to Sophie Lundy-Yates, who's our lead equity analyst at HL. And she's been looking at technology companies and where they stand right now. And we'll also hear from our head of investment analysis and research, Emma Wall, who's been talking to Jeremy Gleeson, manager of the AXA Framlington Global Technology Fund. And Susanna's been building another quiz for me to do incredibly badly on. So this time she's been looking into great technology predictions that have been made throughout history. So I'm going to make a prediction of my own. I I predict I'll do very badly. But before we go any further, we do need to take a closer look at the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So clearly for anyone caught up in it, the impact's been unimaginably horrific. And the primary concern will always be for the real human cost of this violence and destruction. But the impact is incredibly widespread and in an interconnected world, it also affects our finances. So there's a risk that among everything else, it could push up prices at a rate we haven't seen for decades. Some analysts are predicting that inflation will actually peak above 8% and high rates are likely to persist for longer too. And we haven't seen CPI above 8% since summer 1991. So this is going to come as a real shock to us. Yeah, that consumer prices index really is soaring and the attack on Ukraine isn't just a humanitarian crisis. It could have far-reaching implications for global trade, which will feed into higher inflation. Gas prices are a major issue. In the immediate aftermath of the invasion, UK gas prices rose between 40% and 60% higher. And though they subsequently fell back, further disruption may well send prices sky high yet again. The UK gets less than 5% of its gas from Russia, which means it is less exposed to shortages, but it's still exposed to international markets, so less supply will push prices higher. And of course, with 85% of our homes heated with gas central heating, it's going to mean higher energy bills. Now, we're already facing the real horror of a 54% rise in the price cap in April, which is just unimaginable. If wholesale prices stay high, it could mean even more eye-watering rises when it changes again in October. And one analyst has suggested that your annual energy bill could rise as high as £3,000. And the oil price has also jumped. Yes, oil prices jumped to over $100 a barrel just after the invasion and they've been climbing higher since then, still proving extremely volatile, above $130 at some points. 
Now, this is going to impact the cost of filling up at the forecourt, but it will also feed through to the cost of manufacturing and distributing everything from furniture to food. Yes, and there are separate pressures on food too, because Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of wheat. And while the UK isn't a big export market for its wheat, it is exposed to international prices, which again shot up after the invasion. So all of this is putting pressure on people's finances, and it comes at a time when they're already facing the biggest cost of living squeeze in a generation. Things are changing dramatically every day, but this is something we're going to need to keep a really close eye on. But in the meantime, we need to talk technology. The price of tech stocks was hit at first, wasn't it? Yeah, the shock of the invasion really sent sectors across the board falling with the tech-heavy Nasdaq composite in the United States dropping 2.5% on the day Russian troops rolled across borders. And although it partly recovered, stocks have since remained highly volatile. And remember, this came on top of a whole list of worries which have emerged this year, from inflation and the cost of living crisis to rising interest rates, which have caused turbulence on stock markets, particularly in the United States since the start of the year, with tech stocks down around 15%. Concerns have been particularly acute for high-growth tech stocks, which have borrowed heavily to invest, and there are more worries about their performance in an era of higher interest rates. So all of this concern of tech stocks, it's going to ring some bells for anyone who bore the brunt of the dot-com bubble bursting. But this is a bit different, isn't it? Well, certainly not all tech stocks are created equal. Companies have very different business models and prospects, from regulation to user numbers. There are huge differences between them. And this is an area we'll be drilling down into with our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lund-Yates, shortly. But there are some trends that have been affecting the sector as a whole. The last few months have seen growth stocks fall out of favour. And that's why the Nasdaq, which houses many of the world's tech giants, has suffered those losses along with wider tech indices. Tech stocks tend to sit in growth sectors, although not all of them. Growth investors, you won't be surprised to hear, look for businesses they think are likely to grow. They hope to profit as the share price rises in line with improvements in the underlying business. Now, this sometimes means paying a bit more for these perceived long-term strengths. The opposite investing style is value investing. Value investors look for companies that appear undervalued, where they think a company's assets or profit potential aren't fully reflected in the share price. They hope to profit when other investors later recognise this value and the share price rises to reflect it. At times of rising inflation and interest rates, investing in highly valued growth companies becomes less attractive. And that's because investors can receive a greater interest rate on their cash savings, making the risks of investing feel less necessary and therefore less appealing. Yes, and as we were talking about earlier, inflation is rising. So overall, there's less appetite to invest in more expensive companies. And at the same time, investors are realising that some of the downward pressure on value names during the pandemic might have been unfair. And so the end result of both of those things working together is a rotation in what investors prefer. Now, another issue affecting the sector, which has been brought into sharp focus with the escalating situation in Ukraine, is the need for companies and organisations to keep an eye trained on just how cyber secure they are. Immediately after the invasion, there was a surge in suspected Russian source cyber attacks. In the UK, the government has reportedly held talks with the national grid about possible attempts to disrupt the energy system. But a digital war is also being fought, and tech giants have come under increasing pressure about whether they should block content to Russia and also stop the spread of disinformation. So let's check in with Richard Skellett, who runs an IT solutions company that takes in everything from cloud computing to cyber security. So, Richard, can you start by telling me a little bit about your business? Yes, um, and thank you very much for the invite today. 
And, and we've got some very serious issues and how can technology go off and help with some of these um, challenges. We have two narratives in our business. One is around social great because we think that we have a wonderful opportunity to be able to look at a levelling up. And the other aspect to this is looking at the operating model. We focus into looking at helping an organisation to become a mutable business. We're looking at enabling an organisation to be in a permanent state of reinvention. We have cost as a reoccurring symptom. Is technology in a position, particularly when we think around service integration, operating model change, are we in a position now where we can be thinking about, and is it possible, essentially, to remove business overhead? So you think then that you may be better positioned in an era of higher inflation as companies seek to really drill down on their overheads. Yeah, absolutely. We've all got these cost challenges. Can we solve cost at root cause for it not to return? You know, I'm an investor. You know, I'm looking for return on investment. And I don't want to be having to worry about cost and budget. You know, these things are in contrast to each other. You know, we want to be able to have an organisation that can manage a return on investment base as opposed to cost and budget. When you see the stock market woes of listed companies, does it give you, though, any concern for the future of the industry? Oh, absolutely. Of course it does. Not just for the industry, but, you know, the effect it has on people's pensions, much of which will be in technology stock. You're sort of talking about companies taking the opportunity to kind of drill down into cost. Is that something that they have the headspace for at the moment? I mean, it does seem that we're kind of going from one crisis to another. Are people taking this opportunity to kind of look at sort of the bigger picture and make these big forward-thinking changes? Unfortunately not. Most organisations are really kind of quite silo-focused. If you look at, say, the convergence around technology as an example and operating model change, until we begin to see these things coming together in a unified, orientated way, you know, we'll continue to see finance deal with finance, HR, deal with HR, technology, deal with technology, marketing, deal with marketing. And there's a whole issue about how you begin to pull these things together to enable a different business operating model. Because it's very clear that the existing business operating model is no longer fit for purpose. How do you go about changing that? What's, what's the thing that's going to make the difference? What, one of the largest costs that organisations have is obviously in regard to people. We're in a world now where essentially everything and anything which is process-based can be automated. So we're into an age of a digital worker. You know, a digital worker works 24-7, never sleeps. A human worker is eight hours a day. So thinking about how we begin to think about human workers and digital workers now coming together. I mean, it sounds like a lot of what you're having to do as a technology business is to kind of almost imagine what the future is going to be like and then build something for that future. How easy is it to be able to put that together and and sort of work out what the trends are going to be and and where the demand of the future is going to lie? When you look at putting things together, first of all, services integration and management is a very, very, very important area. We need to be thinking about the outcomes that one wants in one's business. So therefore, we need to move away from kind of talking about things like KPIs and so forth and be very outcome focused. So it's not just the issue around integration and technology within the IT uh, department itself. There's huge issues in terms of thinking about this integration when it comes into marketing, into HR, into finance. What we've seen 
particularly since the start of the pandemic, is an accelerated shift into uh, digital. But there has been a patchwork of services that are used by some companies in this kind of race to get people into the virtual world. What kind of cybersecurity issues does that throw up? Benjamin Franklin said that there's two things in life that are guaranteed, death and taxes. And, and the third thing it's absolutely guaranteed now is that you're going to be hacked, whether individually or organisationally. So that takes you into thinking about, is the focus about trying to prevent or is the focus more about how you recover? Allied Worldwide is one of 17 companies in our group. And one of our organisations that uh, we work very closely with is in the security business. When we think about hacking, there's some remarkable people with remarkable skill sets and being able to try to look at protecting every single device that you have on your network is an impossible task at the end of the day. So the first thing you ought not to do is to go off and shut down. You, you don't want the hacker to know that you've now discovered them. So you need to be thinking a lot more about not the tech, but the organisation itself. How do you manage the situation? So the first thing that one needs to go off and identify is that where do we think the hacker has gone? And one part of this is that are we dealing with really a professional organisation that is seeking information? We need to be looking at things in different ways, looking at each of the areas of the business where we think that we might have some form of problem. Because it's not just always about going off and hacking someone's personal data from an organisation. There's so much that goes on beyond that. What about ideas around sales and marketing, new products, IP, new creativity? So I think there's too much focus basically on the personal data side. Now, obviously, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has put cybersecurity into a sharper focus with uh, many reports of hack attacks. How well equipped do you think companies are to cope with growing threats from hackers? I generally think that they're very ill-equipped. And, and what we see go off and get published in the press is just a small fraction of what really happens behind the media. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we've got um, a, a business that we've invested into. And essentially, they operate at um, a kind of top secret level. And, and as a result, you know, I'm able to see evidence of some very, 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 very serious issues, particularly around some technology that's already out there that you and I would be using daily. There's issues from a technology viewpoint that enable hackers and penetration. And I don't want to scaremonger here, but it's a real serious issue. But we are used to technology companies telling us much more optimistic stories about the future, partly to excite investors. Do you think there is then a, a risk in the culture of big promises? Well, I think that's one of, one of the key things here is about the expectations that one sets. You know, if you take the area of security, I'm not aware of any technology company would go off and say, hey, we 100% guarantee or even 99 or 97 or 98% guarantee you're not going to be hacked. So when we look at technology companies, I think effectively they set an expectation and instead of over-delivering on that expectation, it tends to be under-delivered, unfortunately. And one part of the problem is, when we look at technology, we tend to talk about technology very much in isolation. Okay, so we'll talk about data, we'll talk about security, we'll talk about blockchain, the internet of all things. 
The big issue is, is that when you look at these subject matter technology companies, they're very silo-based. It's the convergence of the technologies, which is a big, 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 big issue. So one of the areas that I think we'll see remarkable growth on is where we're going to see particularly service integration and management companies not reselling technology solutions, but more focused about helping organisations and technology companies themselves on this convergence piece. Okay, it's been really fascinating to talk to you, Richard. That is unfortunately all we have time for. We could delve ever deeper into this subject, and I'm sure it is one that we will touch on again. But great to have you here on the podcast. My pleasure, and thank you so much for the invite. Now we can look at the implications of all of this uh, with Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst here at HL, for listed technology companies. Sophie, let's talk about Meta to start off with because Meta has been in the news a lot recently, not least for its dramatic fall in its share price quite recently. Hi Susanna, yes absolutely. We can't really talk about the developments in the tech industry without talking about Meta because it's really kind of in the eye of the storm um, as it were for a number of reasons. So when we're talking about Meta, obviously we're talking about Facebook's parent company Um, And it's been really badly punished in the last few months. It's currently trading on a price to earnings ratio, which looks at how much the market is willing to pay for one dollar of earnings um, of around 16. Now, that is much lower than the average and definitely not the kind of valuation you would associate with an exciting tech name, really. And there are some valid reasons for the market's nervousness, to be completely honest. Meta is pumping billions of dollars into new IT infrastructure and its ambitions to build out the metaverse um, do little to quell this fear. Usership growth is also slowing and advertising revenue is in for a period of stagnation um, amid inflation. Um, Now, that raises questions about Meta's competitive position in the face of mushrooming rivals like TikTok. The weaker outlook for advertising is especially concerning because advertising revenue is Facebook's bread and butter. When you think of Facebook, it is an advertising business, which I think gets lost sometimes from the day-to-day consumer. Marketing teams pay handsomely to make the most of those data footprints that users are leaving behind. Um, And then the well-publicised effort to create a metaverse is all very exciting and it all sounds great, but I'm reserving real opinion until we have hardened proof of exactly how it plans to make that a profitable reality. Now, that's all kind of the the, the challenging stuff. There are some reasons for optimism. Now, around half the world's population logs into one of um, Meta's apps. So that includes Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger on a monthly basis. That is an incredible feat. And and it means Meta's significance isn't going anywhere. Of course, data privacy and security, as we've been discussing at length already in this this episode, is a really big one for Meta. Um, And it could really do without another PR blunder in, in the current environment. So we've already talked about the surge in cyber attacks following the invasion of Ukraine. Just how much will this be concentrating minds deep inside the tech giants? I should say, obviously, and you've already touched on this, this is um, absolutely a huge concern for pretty much every company within global markets at the moment. But honing in on on tech specifically, um, it stands to reason that tech companies in particular have to consider cyber risk. Um, I think this is especially important when thinking about the growth of cloud computing in particular. The sheer scale of cloud processing power and the amount of data that's kind of hanging around in these virtual spaces is honestly unfathomable. Um, And it is definitely something the likes of Microsoft will be thinking about as its cloud proposition balloons. 
in general, cloud computing is a really attractive business model because it's higher margin, which I, you know, I've spoken about that before. But I do wonder that with so few names in, in the cloud space, it makes a data or security breach, were it to happen, a disproportionately big problem because market share will be easier to, to lose. It's a small number of people with a seat at the cloud table. Now, as it stands, Microsoft makes about $18 billion in quarterly revenue from its, from its cloud business. Given this environment, what are the prospects for cybersecurity firm Dark Trace? Dark Trace is obviously a, a hot topic. So for those that don't know, it's a UK-based artificial intelligence specialist and it focuses on cybersecurity. So its attraction in today's climate of constant cyber threat is easy to understand. Um, and Dark Trace's reach is, is huge. There's no denying that. It works with well over 4,000 organisations across the globe. And while the product is enviable, there are some concerns. The first is that it's yet to turn a profit. So on its annual revenues of 281 million or there or thereabouts, and that makes it really hard to value the shares using my preferred metric, that price to earnings ratio that I, that I mentioned earlier. So just because something sounds good doesn't mean you should buy it at any price, a, a bit like you wouldn't with a car. It also means that investors should exercise caution because risk is elevated as there's no buffer for if things hit a rough patch. The other thing to consider is pretty huge political risk. Mike Lynch, um, Dark Trace's founding investor, has now been ruled against in both a fraud trial and also an extradition hearing. Um, so that sort of thing tends to control the share price in a big way. And that could make things bumpy for a while. Thanks, Sophie. It doesn't look like an end to the testing times for technology is imminent. So it'll be a really interesting one to watch. But now we'd like to bring in Emma Wall, who's our head of investment research and analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She's been speaking to Jeremy Gleeson, manager of the AXA Framlington Global Technology Fund. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. So markets are haywire at the moment. We're going to try and put that to one side to focus in on some really interesting topics, technology, which I know is very much your bread and butter, and talk about cloud computing. What is cloud computing? Because it's not actually in the cloud, is it? <laughs> no, but um, we've probably seen the uh, depiction of a graphic of a cloud in many different places. At some point, maybe around about 10 to 15 years ago, a lot of companies in the sector stopped talking about the World Wide Web and started talking about the cloud. Basically, it was just an alternative phrase to use to describe everything that was going on in the internet. A lot of exciting opportunities that, that were developing. And it's basically a coming together of developments around technology associated with broadband infrastructure, um, highly scalable software, and a widespread adoption of devices that we all sort of carry around with us that are always connected to the internet. So that, in a nutshell, without going into too much technical detail, is kind of what the cloud is. And in terms of what that means for you as a professional investor, what opportunities is that creating? Because we have heard some of the big players in tech, the Amazons, for example, talk about cloud as a kind of offshoot of their business and a monetizing opportunity, haven't we? Absolutely. Three companies seem to be leading the way in the Western world, at least, with regards to cloud computing. I would argue that Amazon are very much the pioneer with their AWS, Amazon Web Services. Microsoft are up there too with their Azure product offering. And Google are third place, but also growing very, very rapidly in this area with their GCP or Google Cloud platform. 
business. What they're enabling companies to do, and this can be any size of company from sort of mega international organisations to small mom and pop shops, is to get access to computing power that um, typically they would have had to purchase themselves. And that means that, you know, historically, if you wanted to run applications, software applications, you would have had to buy the hardware, the computers, the servers, the networking equipment. You would have had to buy the software and you would have had to then get somebody to fix it all together for you. So it was all working. And all of that took time and took a lot of money. And there was a risk that it didn't work. With the cloud, you can be up and running far, far quicker. You know, as long as you've got a device with an internet browser and you can connect into using a internet browser into that software, that software is being run in the cloud for you. The easiest way of um, understanding that is Google Mail or even Outlook if you use Microsoft um, Hotmail. Both of those are basically email services being run in the cloud. You as a user do not have to buy any software to use them. You don't have to buy servers or email equipment to deliver that email to you. You just literally need a connected device and a broadband connection. So essentially it's outsourcing, isn't it? This is the latest iteration of businesses outsourcing to a provider. Absolutely. And if you if you want to get really technical, there's loads of acronyms. And the three most popular ones are PAS, which is Platform as a Service, IAAS, which is Infrastructure as a Service, and then SAAS, or SaaS, Software as a Service. It is outsourcing. It is basically paying the service provider or receiving, I guess, in, in the form of email in kind, a service which is you're not buying outright. You're not owning outright. Jeremy, thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. Well, that was Emma Waller, Head of Investment Research and Analysis at Hargreaves Lansdowne, talking to Jeremy Gleeson, Manager of the AXA Framlington Global Technology Fund. Please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. And I'm braced for more of Susanna's incredibly difficult questions. I am hoping at some point that we stop with these really hard questions and we move into something I know loads about, like savings and debt or or chocolate bars or something. But in the meantime, I'm ready for another shocking showing in the quiz. Well, you never know because I've gone back in time, Sarah, this week to look at some of the great technological predictions of the past. And I'm starting with, I have to do this, Tomorrow's World from 1989, when I can imagine you were still watching kids TV. Yes, I'm not quite old enough to, uh, to have been an adult by 1989. The show predicted the world of 2020. But which of the following did they successfully predict would be in our homes by now? A smart speaker, smart lighting or movie streaming services. Blimey, well, I didn't know tomorrow's world were very good at the uh, making really accurate predictions at all. I wish I could remember what they were predicting back then, but I have just no idea. So I'm going to make a wild stab in the dark. Was it the smart speaker? It was. Well done. Yeah, lucky guess. <laughs> so they predicted a speaker you could demand your favourite music from. And although they did suggest you could shout Bach and get to hear your favourite concerto, though you'll probably get some kind of dog-related reply if you tried that now. OK, Sarah, let's see if you're on a roll. We'll go even further back for this one to 1943, when the president of IBM calculated just how many computers the company would go on to sell. 
To make it a bit easier, I'll take your answer to the nearest 100,000. I have no idea. That's impossible. I'm going to err on the side of caution here and say 100,000. No, the answer, believe it or not, was actually five. Not (laughs) 500,000, but a total of five computers. I mean, to be fair to him, at the time, computers were roughly the size of a house, so wouldn't really have seemed a mass market product. But perhaps they should have uh, drawn on the insights of tomorrow's world. But anyway, let's try something a bit more recent. In fact, I'm going to ask you just how recently this prediction was made. It was a quote from Bill Gates who announced, in two years, spam will be solved. But when did he make this prediction? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, I know he left the sort of day-to-day involvement with Microsoft back in the late 2000s. So I know he was obviously definitely wrong, because we're still obviously facing an awful lot of spam now. But I'm not sure how wrong. Um, It's going to have to be another wild guess, isn't it? How about 2005? You are so close. So I am going to give you that because it was actually in a speech at Davos in 2004. It was a bit wide of the mark because there are currently, you are right, around 122 billion spam messages we receive every day so it's not entirely eradicated is it okay so let's finish up with the technology of fashion in 1929 there was a fabulous material that was set to revolutionize fashion but what was it i'll give you multiple choice was it grass pvc or asbestos (laughs) blimey well fashion is not a forte of mine um i'd have loved for pvc to have been a fashion prediction in the 20s I think that might be a little bit more 1970s. Um, I'm going to guess grass. No, apparently it was asbestos, which has the added advantage of being able to clean it by throwing it into the fire, which could, of course, save a fortune on dry cleaning. But it was only much later that the problems with asbestos emerged. We do know that it certainly wouldn't have been a good fashion garment. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that the exciting technology that fashion industry is waiting for is going to be asbestos. No, it certainly wasn't. That is all from us this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 7th of March 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice, so you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. And past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment. And investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more details. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Richard, Sophie, Emma and Jeremy, and our producer, Elizabeth Cotson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye.